Welcome to Awareness to Action, a podcast brought to you by Northwestern Community Services Prevention and Wellness. I'm your host, Casey, a social worker and prevention and wellness specialist here in Virginia. Our goal is to bring you stories of people who are engaging in their communities in meaningful ways, to hopefully inspire and encourage you to seek those connections in your own community. Hello, and welcome back to Awareness to Action. I'm excited to welcome Jared Rowan to the show today. Jared is a psychotherapist on the Eastern Shore of Maryland, working with individuals across the lifespan, providing one-on-one, family, and couples therapy for over 13 years. Jared is also an ERYT 500-hour yoga teacher, teaching for a decade, and a Katona yoga teacher in training. He aims to teach yoga as an experience and a way of living life, connecting movement, philosophy, and personal insights. Jared is so passionate about, in his words, creating an embodied experience that allows individuals to tune into patterns, gather insight, and utilize tools and techniques to navigate this life. We talked about his experience as a therapist and yoga instructor and the ways they overlap to empower. Jared, welcome to the podcast. Hi there. Let's just jump right into things. Let's have you start with telling our listeners about yourself and the work you do and the path you took to get here. Okay. So yeah, my name is Jared Rowan. I am a psychotherapist and yoga instructor in the Ocean City, Maryland area. I've been doing it for about 14 years now. So I've been a psychotherapist for about 14 and then a yoga instructor for about a decade, but practicing yoga for about 14 years as well. And kind of the path that led me here, I was pretty, I'm a pretty transparent person. So just through my own childhood and upbringing, I had childhood anxiety and OCD as a child, not like horribly bad, but it definitely impacted my life. And I also grew up with a sibling that had some addiction and mental health issues. And then my father is also a therapist. So there was a lot of kind of, of of influence in driving me this direction to become a therapist. And then the yoga just kind of naturally happened when I moved to Ocean City. Oddly enough, I was sharing an office with a case manager and she happened to be a yoga instructor. And she's like, you got to come try yoga. Like, it's really great for, you know, stress and all that type of stuff. So I just started doing it. And then from there, I got my 200-hour certification, finished my 300-hour certification, and I'm now doing a third certification. And I actually got to travel to India as well for part of the training. So that's kind of the path that has brought me where I'm at today. Purely out of curiosity, I think it's really interesting when people go into oftentimes helping professions that their parents are also in. I feel like you see a lot of people who are teachers because a parent was a teacher or a doctor because a parent was a doctor. I'm curious what that has been like for you to have seen it when you were young and to make it your own now. So my story, I guess, is pretty, pretty, will not make your point a little bit, but my dad was super boundary oriented. So I actually didn't hear a lot about what he did growing up. It was a pretty intensive job. I mean, he was working at like psych hospitals when they were still, you know, around and pretty regularly. So he did not talk about work a whole lot. 
but my uncle was also a hypnotic therapist and he's written a, a few b- books. He's since passed away, but I don't know that it played like a huge, huge role. It was more, I've always had this drive to as cliche as it is like to, to help others or to like provide servitude. And I was originally going to school to, be, to do like pre-med and physical therapy. And I just had an amazing child psychology professor that I just like fell in love with and was like, oh my gosh, I totally have to, I have to do this. So I switched. I have, I actually have a bachelor's degree in biology, which is pretty funny. I was the only science major in my entire grad program. But yeah, so it's a little bit of a different, different way in, I think. Yeah. You found your own way. Yeah. That's good. I also had a child psychology professor in college who I just, I was like, I'm not, I don't want to do what she does, but I want to be just like her in whatever we I go do. go to the same do. college, do we? No, I don't think so. But oh, okay. unless your professor was at JMU, I don't think yeah. so. <laughs> yeah, so the first time we spoke, you specifically mentioned the difference between catharsis and doing the actual work in therapy. And I just want to jump right into that because I found it really interesting and I have been thinking about it a lot since you first mentioned it. So can you just speak more to that? Yeah, I really love this question or this thought or this pondering. It's like for for people that don't know, for the listeners that don't know, like what is catharsis? I think that's a good place just to start. But, you know, uh, as we talk about therapy, part of therapy is catharsis. But then we're going to talk about kind of the direction I've moved in and in the process. But catharsis is really just the purging or like releasing of emotions to hopefully offer some sense of renewal, restoration, spiritual healing. And catharsis is really like, I always describe it as like when you take a like a big sigh, like that's what a cathartic experience is. It's like an unloading. And that is part of a therapeutic process. However, we really want to move into not making that the only part of of the therapeutic process. So like, and I learned this actually through yoga is one of my teachers had said, like, it's so cliche to say, but like letting go if you've ever been to a yoga class or just like in general, you probably hear such lingo about like, you just got to let it go. You got to move on. And one of my teachers told me, which I love, is you should never tell anyone to let go if they don't have the tools and techniques to deal with the letting go. So I think that's where this movement from, yes, catharsism is important and like the processing is the is part of the therapeutic process, but it's only the beginning. The real work becomes after the catharsis. Does that make sense to kind of get? Yeah, yeah, get absolutely, absolutely. I think something I just we'll talk more about stigma. I'm sure in this yeah. conversation, but I think that there's a really beautiful push in a lot of spaces to reduce stigma around seeking counseling, going to therapy, checking in on one's mental health. But I, I think sometimes those conversations stay very surface level and we're like, everyone should go to therapy. And it's like, okay, great. But like, maybe I don't know anyone in my life who's been to therapy and I don't really know what that looks like. So now it's a daunting thing and maybe I won't pursue it. So I I think talking about the tools and the attitudes that someone can have when pursuing counseling 
and trying to do the work is really important. Yeah. And I, yeah. And you make a really good point. Like you don't even, and maybe this is a misconception. You don't even have to know why that you're there. Like sometimes I, and I really love when people are like, you know, I'm just feeling a little lost. Like, I don't even know why I'm here today. And I'm like, well, you're in the right place. Like my job is to help you figure that out. So for now, it's just coming and chatting and like getting to know your story. And I think that's what we really need to focus on is we all have a story to tell. We all have a narrative. And it's so funny because so many of us love movies and books and, you know, the hero's journey and like all these things. And I think people fail to realize that they have that within themselves. And the processing of that story can be where you start. It doesn't have to be like, I self-identify like, I have an anxiety disorder, or I'm depressed, or I've had a really bad thing happen to me that I can't get over. It can just be, you know, I want to figure out my direction. Or I have a lot of people coming and they're like, I'm trying to figure out purpose. Like, and I think those are not like easy questions by any means, but entryways into like, figuring out if there are deeper stuff, you know, I really want people to realize like, you don't have to have like, I'm sure you've heard the term big T, little T trauma, like, you know, like, you don't have to have trauma to come to therapy, it can just be, I'm almost like thinking of it, like I have a pattern or a habit, I'm just curious about, and I want to know why I keep repeating this pattern or this habit. And and the funny one I always give is like, you know, women who date the same bad boys over and over. And they're like, why am I dating this, this type of man, you know, but it can be something like if you're perfectionistic, if you're a procrastinator, like it can be these like not super deep. Of course, I welcome the deep discussions as well, but I just think there's so much benefit from just processing through what your life has been thus far, if that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. And I feel like, uh, you know, sometimes, I think sometimes it's hard to notice patterns within ourselves, but there are other patterns that are pretty obvious. And it's like, okay, I see that this is happening. I can identify the pattern, but beyond that, I like really do not know how to help myself. And that's okay. It's, it's good to have a buddy yes. <laughs> to help you. And, well, and that's like, you make two really, really nice points is you have to think societal conditioning. So like you said, like some people aren't even self-aware, which awareness is the first goal of therapy is to be, be able to be self-aware. And we can talk, there's like four main goals to therapy. But the first one is when people become introspective, I'm like, yes, they, they like, they can identify but you made a really good point about like people not really knowing what their patterns or habits are. And I think a lot of that has to do with the, I'm going to generalize here because in the work that I've done, the majority of people are what I call like rug sweepers, which is like when things happen, they sweep it under the rug and many families function in this mentality. So then as adults, we also function like that. We're like very unaware actually as as people, and I always used to joke with people, like there are tons of bumpy rugs in America. Like people are not, you know, like people are not dealing with their stuff or even able to recognize that they have stuff. Like I will have people that are crying and I will ask them why they're crying. They cannot identify 
like that that emotional experience to like their reaction or like a thought so i think you make a really good point like people just aren't able to identify it because they've been conditioned not to and i also love the point you made about a buddy and i would love to like talk about that more because i have so many people that say well i don't think i need a therapist because i have a friend and i'm like well here's the thing friends are biased people as much as they love you and as much as they're going to tell you they're going to be straight up with you they have a stake in a relationship with you it's more helpful to have a non-biased formal relationship with someone it's going to call you out on your stuff. So I think that's a really important point to point out is like with my, my clients and my patients, I care about them deeply, but I am not friends with them, you know? And, and I think that's important to kind of point out. There is a difference between going to your friend for support and working on yourself in therapy. Absolutely. There's also legal parameters to confidentiality. Your yes. therapist is not going to your other friend and being like, oh my God, you will not believe what right. PC told me. <laughs> right. Right. That will never right. happen. <laughs> and, you know, we're not supposed to tell our friends our deep, dark things. Mm-hmm. You know, like that, that's more for us to, pro- like Carl Jung, like a therapist, I don't know if you're familiar, but he talks a lot about the unconscious and there's some things that we don't share. And that's why so often people even lie in therapy, you know, because it's kind of part of the process. But our deepest, darkest is not things that we tell our partners, even or our friends. It may be, but it's, it's for us to really work through to like determine what we want to do with that experience. And yes, confidentiality is huge. I mean, you're, you're protected. It's one of the safest environments for you to be yourself and to not be judged, which I think isn't always like friends want to say they don't judge, but sometimes that does happen amongst the group where in a therapeutic setting, I just have had so many people like, oh my God, like I just don't feel judged. I feel really like supported. So I think that's important also to. Yeah. And the safety you mentioned is key too. You know, same thing you said before, like to, to talk about these things without the right or to let it go without the right tools, like you said before, is, is not always safe or healthy. So to talk about it with a friend, like if you're trying to dig into those really deep, dark things that you need to work through with a friend, it might not be a safe way to do it because they don't have the training or the tools for that kind of care. And that's not to say, you know, that community is not helpful and that we don't need relationships. I, I never want that to to sound like that, but to really unpack those things, you need a professional. I, yeah, you totally do. And you, and I used to say, as I was training therapists, like trauma work is called, and I, and again, I'm trying to avoid these the, the terminology, but trauma or exp- I like adverse experiences. You have to really be trained to deal with that because if you unpack it, you have to package it back in the box within the hour. And then you want the people to come back to, to continue to work through their, their, adverse experiences or their traumas. And it does take a skill to be able to do that. And like you said, it's not saying community and friends aren't an essential part of our our process, but they're not something that we can rely on for change, I guess, is like, we wanna have, as we say, like these tools and techniques for change, like 
like like if we're disclosing to a friend some some big thing that happened to us and but what about after that then where do we go like what if we just word vomit or as the kids are calling it i'm learning now is trauma dumping this is like a new term that that gen z is teaching me but like once you disclose all of that what like don't you want to be able to make sure you have tools and techniques to like regulate the experience after because it's not just like a one and done thing oftentimes you say it and then your your mind kind of is with it a little bit and if you don't have the tools and techniques you're going to potentially spiral out of control or which i think is a really good thing which maybe we'll talk more about later is like you're going to use emotions to make decisions and believe it or not we don't want to use emotions to make decisions so i think that's also like really really good point to to mention absolutely we mentioned stigma before i'd love to talk about and and we talk about it all the time on this show but it just is always important and always relevant and will be for as long as stigma exists around mental health and mental health care so i just would love to hear what it's looked like for you to address stigma in your life and in your work. Oh my gosh, you're right. It's like almost like an overdone topic, right? But it's never overdone because it's still relevant, but I totally get what you're saying. So this is the, I guess, like trying to formulate like like mental health stigma. We all know that talking about our problems, you know, we tend not to do it, as I mentioned earlier, because we've been conditioned not to do it already there's stigma we also imply quite a bit in society that you should be able to fix yourself which is partially true that doesn't mean you don't have mentors and teachers to help you along the way which we leave out quite a bit so i think that's a big piece of the stigma and then you add on cultural socioeconomic spiritual influences that teach you for example like men men are not going to therapy as much as women, like, which is a really unfortunate thing. The majority of my caseload is female. I probably have, I probably see 70 people. Maybe I have 10 men, if that. So the stigma of you don't talk about your feelings, you know, you keep them inside. I think that is a, almost a societal programmatic issue. So without like, going that other route of stigma i think it's just to point out that we've almost been conditioned to to not talk about these things and i i I know you probably know this casey but like the more you talk about it the more you reduce the stigma and the more that you own it and you're like oh my gosh you're like me like when i tell people by the way i go to therapy oh my god a therapist that goes to therapy like you know it almost relieves people or like makes them feel relatable like because someone who's saying I'm trained to deal with an emotional experience, I can't always deal with my own. Or like you said earlier, I can't always identify my own pattern because I live in this body, but it's like I, I'm kind of robotic and just going through day to day. So I think that's just something I want to point out is like stigma, I think, is just a systematic, societal, programmatic issue. And I think, like I said, the only way to reduce it is to talk about it and normalize it because I feel the, the, how do I describe it? People who have been to therapy tend to be more resilient, adaptable people. Like they really know how to navigate 
challenge and struggle rather than like waiting your whole life to have that really hard struggle and then you completely self-destruct like i kind of want to have all the tools in my like little knapsack for like when the bad things happen not saying they will but i'm able to pull on experience so i think if we relabeled mental health as like almost as much as we prioritize physical health and i'm sure you've heard the like comparison over and over but like it's interesting like we would never discourage a diabetic to stop insulin but we're not like encouraging people to seek counsel or direction so it's like you know because people believe so much in like mental health is a, is a choice or like a self-inflicted in, thing when there, there's so many studies behind how that is not true that it is a genetic disorder but it's also an epigenetic disorder meaning that your environment changes your genetic code like this isn't like magical talking this is like research based so i think the more we can shift that and i think schools are doing that a lot better and colleges and it seems like people are getting at least being more open to therapy i think than like when i started 14 years ago so i think it's there yeah i think there's a flexibility of it that's growing of of seeing it as a health need. And we have different health needs throughout our lives as we go through different stages. You don't, right. you know, you don't necessarily get started with therapy and then utilize it every week for the rest of your life. Yes. You know, it might yes. be like, I really need this in this season. And then there's a time where you're like, you know, this is not as helpful to me as it used to be. So you take some time off and then it's time again. That's, right. that's what my own therapeutic you know, journey has looked like, and it's great. My yeah, life and, changes. Yeah. And I think that's really important. Like I've been in and out of therapy 10 years and there are moments when I went once a week, there were moments when I didn't go for two years. There was a moment like, holy crap, I'm getting married. I need to process this. Um, it was situational. There was the pandemic, which I was like, probably need to talk to someone about working from home and how small my apartment is with my partner. Like there's, there's tons of, you're right. It's kind of like, you don't have to utilize it over and over and over. And a good therapist will be okay with you saying you need a break. I have had the experience. I've had three therapists and one really didn't like want me to go on a break. And it really rubbed me the wrong way. And ultimately I did seek a different provider because I do believe it's self-driven. So most therapists will say, you know what? Let me know when you need me in the future if you need me. So I want people to know that you're in control. It's not like somebody's going there to like keep you around for years. Some people do stay for a while or tap in and out, but I think that's important to, to recognize. I wanted to mention an analogy that I thought of when you were talking about how, yeah, I can help myself to a degree. I just finished like a very sweet lighthearted summer read. It's called yeah. Evie Drake Starts Over. And I'll include it in the description for anyone. I want to give the author credit, but I don't remember her name. But at the, toward the end of the book, there's a therapist talking to a, a woman who's very hesitant about therapy. And she's saying like, I really just feel like I should be able to figure this out on my own. And the therapist is like, did you know you can pull out your own teeth? Like if you wanted to do a tooth extraction on yourself, you could you could get the tools and do it, but it probably wouldn't be very safe. 
and it might end up being very unpleasant. So it could be helpful to have someone who knows what they're doing to extract your tooth. What and a lovely metaphor. I know. I, I know that to be true, but in that visualization, I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> wow. how beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Like, why wouldn't you go the easier route that like, I don't even know what to do with these emotions. Like, this is a person who's like an emotion expert. Like, let me see if they, if they can, and they will, they'll be able to hold space for you to validate you, to help reframe what we call cognitive distortions or inaccurate ways of viewing things. Like they're going to have all these skills that you're right. You might get there, but probably a whole lot later or not at all. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you just keep adding to that knapsack or tool belt that you're talking about, you know, over time you, when you're in therapy are, having these tools given to you and encouraged. And you're also then taking those and you're able to find your own tools. It really is a, a collaborative partnership when it's, when it's the right therapeutic fit. And I think that's important for people to know too. Yeah. And it's not like, like you said, not all tools work for everyone. Like, believe it or not, one really good tool is just breath. And I know that's like, like even I would like laugh at that. Like, oh my God, just breathe. Right. But the reason we teach people that is because it's a bigger concept. It's like the ability to just breathe is slowing down your reactivity. It's allowing your emotions to settle. It's like something that you can focus on that isn't that repeating thought that you're having. So it can be simple tools like breath. It can be journaling. Some people are adverse to that. Again, it's not like one size fits all. It can be exercise. It can be meditation. It can be prayer, art. I mean, there's so, so many tools that people can utilize. And again, some of them, like, it's funny because sometimes I'll have people say, oh my God, I can't believe I'm paying you to tell me this. Like, it'll be these obvious <laughs> of things. I had somebody do that a couple months ago. And I was like, well, what you and your husband need to do is have a calendar on the fridge so that you can see where your kids are. And she's like, paying you a copay for this. I'm like, yes. I'm like, you are, but it's well worth it. Right. Like, so I think you're right. Like that's, that's a good point to make about like collecting those tools and figuring out which ones work with you, but be willing to try each one at least. Yes. Yes. Because Oftentimes what we're working through in therapy is not low stakes, but the tools to try very low stakes. It is very low stakes for me to try journaling and realize this is not for me. And then to not do it. Like, what did that cost me? Maybe the, the price of a journal (laughs) or a piece of paper and a pencil, you know, and what, 20 minutes? Like, yeah. And as therapists, I mean, not, not all, but I don't expect people to do their homework. So we use the tool of resistance as a tool of treatment. So when people come in, like it just happened today, I had a session, a telehealth session, and she's like, oh my God, I didn't do my homework. And I was like, well, that's okay. Let's like talk about like what prevented you from doing it. So know that like the expectation is to just have the dialogue around it or give it a try and then go like, oh my God, Jared, I hated journaling. Like that was actually painful for me. And then we explore that a bit more, but then maybe we try something different. And I love that you said low stakes because that is like, yeah, it's low stakes. So. Yeah. One tool slash practice 
slash there's probably a lot of other ways you could refer to it yeah. that, that you love and are passionate about is yoga. And yes. I want to make sure that we talk about your mobile yoga studio. Yes. Please. Yes. yes. And just me- first mentioning, I always like to preface this yoga is not a religion. So I always want people to know that. And that yoga is a lifestyle and that you can have a religion and practice yoga. So yoga is really, there's actually eight limbs to yoga. And a lot of people don't know this, but the only one that is physical, there's only one. All the other ones are learn are about how to treat other people, how to treat yourself, breath work, meditation, focus, the ability to surrender. And then there's the physical practice. So I want people to know like, oh my gosh, that's all in yoga. Yes. If you go to a good yoga practitioner, you will get all that, which it's kind of therapeutic. It's not kind of, it is therapeutic, but I have a mobile yoga studio. I worked for a traditional studio for about nine years and I just wanted to, I don't want to say like my, we had different integrity, but my, my vision changed from when it started to where I am now. Like it was a very fitness oriented space and I was totally into that but I've moved in more of this direction of like applying these tools, even in yoga, like giving people breath work to work on or having a discussion about mediating two, two qualities in life, like effort and rest. How do you do that? And I wanted to have a space where we could practice physically, but there were also be these moments of kind of like discussion or what we call dharma talk in the class so i kind of just said i'm going to do this mobile yoga studio i'm going to do pop-up at different places i'm not going to have like an actual physical place so i've been doing that it'll be a year in january and it's called ohm evolve and it's actually part of the main physical space is in the therapy office that i use there's a huge wellness room And then I do lots of events throughout the area and teacher trainings, training people to be teacher, yoga teachers, and tons and tons of workshops as well. I would love to talk more about what you're doing with it in the community, because I have noticed a, what I think is a really positive shift in, at least in my city yoga becoming a little bit more accessible, like not just being within the walls of a studio with a very expensive monthly membership fee, but like project yoga that's done in a park and there's a recommended or suggested donation, but it's not necessary or just like community events where it's come one, come all, like bring your own mat. Let's see what happens. What, what do you have to say about that? Oh, I love that. Like accessibility. So that's another part is the studio I've, I've like created is an inclusive studio. So even the promotional images are all bodies, all shapes, all sizes, all colors, all people. And I really wanted to make yoga accessible because it is in a, it's intimidating to a lot of people. So the yoga that I teach now is not this power yoga, which I am avoiding using this term. And, it, and it's, it's it's a different style at this point. And then I also offer a pay what you can method. So I, I set a price, but if you can't pay, you can't. 
like, but you still can come and practice. And I'm fortunate enough to do that because it isn't my main living. And then monthly, I give away donations to local charities and global charities. So we do like yoga classes that are called karma classes, which I'm sure Westerners are familiar with. Oh, your karma. But it's a little bit different in the yoga philosophy. It's not like, oh my God, if you do something bad, something bad will happen. It's more like karma is like kind of like giving of energy. And in return, you're creating more positive energy. It may not even be personal to your experience, but the collective. So once a month, I will do classes where we donate for like the Humane Society or, you know, Believe in Tomorrow or a lot of these different organizations. I think that's also important and, and they're free. So I have some people that come to class that don't have memberships. I think that's really important because you're right. White, it's been kind of whitewashed a little bit, you know, when it came over here and you're right, it became this thing that isn't really feasible for a lot of people. I mean, $25 for a drop-in, that's pretty expensive. So I think, yeah, I've, I've really worked on, on doing that and giving it away for free. Like if someone asks me to do an event, I really try to meet them with what they can afford rather than like blowing them out of the water or not charging at all. There was a period of time when the pandemic hit, I did for the public school systems, I did like a monthly mindfulness for the entire county. And it was only a five minute mindfulness exercise, but it's like looking to be able to do those, those types of things. I think is really important. Yeah. It feels like your, your work is just so rooted in all the work that you're doing rooted in this, like just really being connected with ourselves, being connected with our emotions and our processing of things and our bodies. And there, I think is such an empowerment in feeling and understanding our emotions, our thoughts, our bodies, and, and it always being a work in progress. You never like reach a point of full understanding, but that growing is just so empowering. And well, I just think it's really beautiful. Mm, I love that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And I, and I love that, what you said there, because both yoga and therapy teach people that they can become what I call the great mediator of their life. And that is an empowering place to realize, like, for example, in a yoga class that you get to rest when you want to, that's pretty like powerful. I get to make a decision or how about I'm going to push myself to a limit. Wow. Look at the resiliency I have or like the strength, Ditto to a therapy session. Like you are the great mediator. Like people are almost shocked. Like, well, you're telling me I can set a boundary with someone or I'm able to like speak up and it's normal to feel this way. Like, yeah, like you have the ability to pull back or push forward. Like, you know, so I think such a good, good reframe or what you just brought up is like, it is an empowering space, yoga and going to therapy, because you really find yourself in the process and deconstruct what everyone else has told you about yourself to really discover who you are. Yeah. And I, I love that with both there it's individual work. It's an individual practice, but you're not in therapy alone. 
you've always got your therapist. <laughs> if you're in therapy and with yoga, obviously a practice you can do alone, but so often is done in group spaces. Yes. yes. And so I just a, a general concept I love is when our individual work impacts our community because it impacts how we're showing up yes. and how we are relating to people and how we are moving through our world. And I think you, you've probably heard the, the quote, like, no man is an island, maybe. What I really love recently, one of my mentors told me was, I don't have mirrors in my studio that I'm using right now either, because, uh, you know, that's a distraction and we don't need them really. A lot of yoga teachers are going to tell you they're necessary. They are not. A good yoga instructor will correct your posture. You don't need a mirror. But one of my mentors told me recently that mirrors don't teach you really anything. That mirrors show people what they already see. What teaches you something is other people. And that's why, like you said, practicing in a collective, like a yoga class, it's, it's almost more powerful to go to a communal class because you're going to learn a lot about yourself and other people just by experiencing that rather than you're practicing at home by yourself in front of your, with your Peloton guy or like whatever the case is, which is totally great too, if people are doing that. But I think that's a good reminder is there's so much power in connection and community. Even though you're right, we're doing this individual work, we still need each other to grow. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to be chewing on that mirror. I know. <laughs> that mirror That's a thought. good one, right? Yeah, that is a good one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I just, for anyone listening who's feeling inspired or encouraged or interested in kind of engaging with any of the thoughts that you've just shared more, I'm wondering if you have any books, podcasts, experiences, resources that you would recommend? Yeah. So I definitely, I can link you to my personal website, which has a ton of blogs on there, which is just my name. And then I also have an Instagram that is just Jared Yoga. And then we do a podcast, a friend of mine called Beyond the Mat. And it, season two comes out October 6th. And it's, it comes out every Thursday. And it's yoga meets life podcast. So it's, we take these concepts from the practice of yoga, but we translate them into like normal people life. Like how do I use these at work? And how do I take this concept to navigate struggle in my own life? So check out beyond the mat, which is on Spotify and Apple. And then there are two books that I would reference to people. I will air on the first one. The first one's called the Yamas and the Niyamas. It's by Deborah Adele. And it's one of her only books that she's written. And it's essentially how to treat yourself and how to treat other people. And it gives you 10, 10 components, almost like the 10 commandments to a degree, but super relatable, easy read that will probably change your life. And then if people are looking for a purpose and they're not sure what their purpose is, the best book I've ever read was The Four Desires by Rod Stryker. And that will help you figure out kind of your, your navigation. Beautiful. We will put all of those in the description for people who are interested. Well, I want to close out with the question we ask yes. all of our guests. You already mentioned the importance of awareness, but what does that process of awareness to action mean to you? Yeah, that was a big question, by the way. So I was like looking at it and as it's near the end, I'm like, well, obviously the more 
we're aware of aspects of our life, the more that we're capable of changing them or making efforts to. But the process, that's the hard part. So I think the process of awareness to action starts with a commitment. So you're aware of something, you have to commit to a process, which is where a lot of people start is a commitment. But then where people get hung up is breaking the surface and putting in the work and the effort to move into action. And what I would, would leave people with is you don't have to be unafraid to take action. You have to be willing to be afraid, but to do it anyway. So I think for people to say awareness to action to me means the commitment and then being willing to take fear with you as you step in to the effort that you need to, to change whatever circumstance you have. And then if you're lucky, you'll get insight. You'll learn something in the process. And if not, you'll just, you know, repeat and then you'll have the opportunity again. Yes. Yes. I love that idea of having the opportunity again. Well, thank you so much for being here. I, I am taking much from this. and <laughs> I feel like I'll be thinking about a lot of this <laughs> later tonight <laughs> and this week. So I'm just, I'm grateful for the work that you're doing to help people find the tools that work for them to encourage that. And it sounds like a lot of different spaces and a lot of different areas in the community. I think that's really special. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening. And thank you to Jared for sharing your insight and experience with us. Make sure you subscribe to Awareness to Action so you catch the rest of the conversations we have in store for season three.